0: Welcome to the CL Insight podcast with me, Grace O'Gorman. I'm head of innovation and an animal health specialist at CL. And today we're taking a closer look at the topic of animal health with the launch of our Investing in Animal Health report. This report highlights those challenges, or as we call them in CL, our grand challenges where really the investment in animal health um, is incredibly important to delivering those solutions. So the report is going to showcase the ecosystem in the UK and the breadth of opportunities as well that can make a real difference. I'm joined today by a household name in the veterinary and wider animal health community, Dr. Simon Doherty from Queen's University in Belfast. And Simon wears very many hats. He's got lots of experience across academia, research industry and government. As a veterinary surgeon, he's also a thought leader, an influencer and an excellent science communicator with a real keen interest in global livestock and aquaculture health, welfare and preventative medicine. He also has a real passion for one health and sustainable agricultural production and food security, not only at home here in the UK, but also internationally. And I think that interest is best embodied through his work as vice chair and ambassador for the livestock development charity, Ripple Effect. So a very warm welcome to you, Simon, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. So looking at some of the key grand challenges I've just alluded to, Simon, I think it's probably important to recognise and it's really interesting to see how many of these challenges have improved animal health at the heart of solving them. And I think a really big one is that challenge around sustainability and all of those goals um, that we need to deliver on. And I guess that's one of those areas where innovation is really front and centre. And there's going to be lots of opportunities in this space. Can you give us a feel from your experience where perhaps we should help focus those um, efforts and innovation to deliver on animal health?
1: Yeah, listen, I think that's an absolutely um, fantastic question because it it covers you know, so many different areas. We need to we need to be really clear that we take one health and sustainability beyond being buzzwords that we hear on you know the news twice or three times a day and um, that we hear you know through the the columns of the the veterinary and animal health press you know we need to take it sort of further out um, and and actually put it into some kind of action and and see what that what that really looks like and I think you know some some really good examples of that, you know, came across during COVID where, you know, for us in the, in the animal health sector, you know, we take a lot of learnings around things like biosecurity and epidemiology, the, that study of the spread of, of diseases and, and particularly infectious diseases and how we develop medicines and vaccines. Um, you know, how we look at, um, you know, remote sensing devices and diagnostics um, and, and COVID was actually a really good example, to, you know, of, of how we could sh- sort of showcase a lot of that. We developed a vaccine really quite quickly and um, checked the safety and efficacy um, and got that and um, got that onto the market. We developed rapid diagnostics um, and and went sort of from, you know, PCR into lateral flow tests that we were all using um, every day um, during the the peak of the the pandemic. So that innovation piece um, was very much grounded on work that has already been taking place. You know, the development of lateral flow tests, the development of PCR, the development of vaccines um, has been ongoing. Um, and that's that's work that's gone on across human health and animal health, and um, for some years. So looking at this concept, one health is about the collaboration between different sectors. One medicine is probably a good description for for that translation across between animal health and human health, and vice versa. And there's good examples, you know, going going in both directions, um, but. We, it is very much about taking those beyond just being buzzwords and actually really sort of putting putting them into action and sometimes you know we're we're all we're all busy people you know the human medics are busy the dentists are busy the environmental scientists and environmental health experts are busy for us as, as vets and animal health professionals we're busy working with farmers working with pet owners um you know we're all busy people so actually sometimes taking the time to kind of carve out, opportunities to swap stories and have those kind of conversations. But when they when we do take that time, it can be it can be incredibly fruitful.
0: Yeah. I think you've just described, Simon, One Health in Action. You know, we often get challenged about using those, but we're buzzwords of One Health, but can you demonstrate how it works and just describing that sequence of evolution of technology, the fast forward, the acceleration of solutions uh, for human health, of course, was on the shoulders of animal health and our understanding of coronaviruses and, and all the rest of it, I think, was was really um, important to, to jumpstart that. And I guess as well from the AMR story in the UK over many years now, the livestock sector really building on that collaborative approach that has been highlighted internationally so i think there's there's also learnings there so i guess looking to the future it's extending that in a collaborative way as you've described
1: yeah and and the the amr uh, example i think is 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 another sort of fantastic one you know if you go back 15 years you know whenever amr's 10 15 years when amr started being, you know talked about sort of more and uh, more frequently um there was a bit of mudslinging, you know. It was uh, human medics were blaming all this sort of bucket chemistry and, in uh, you know, and, and all of the uh, administration of vaccines in in feed or on farm, um, and 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 this kind of thing. And and likewise, then there was also, um, I suppose, some dissent around the the use of of uh, antibiotics in human medicine, where if you went to your GP, they had a ten minute consultation, and you likely left with a prescription for for some kind of antibiotic whether you need it really needed it or not so there's that kind of kind of mudslinging once once we started then actually digging down into responsible use reduction refinement replacement of, of antimicrobials um, and looking how that linked to preventative medicine you know we always we often think of innovation being a drug or a vaccine or a box of tricks Sometimes innovation is just how we use the tools that we already have in the toolkit. Um, And there's great examples of that. I mean, sometimes when I describe the transition from um, uh, lactating cow therapy um, to targeted lactating cow therapy or um, selective dry cow therapy, instead of just blanket treating all four quarters of a dairy cow um, with long-acting antibiotics during the dry period, you know, and, and we've moved, we've transitioned, we've developed new products like teat sealants, and um, we've looked at, at um, you know, at other technologies for controlling infectious diseases, and some of those are actually just based on back-to-basics animal husbandry. You know, it's getting dairy farmers to think about getting cows to stand in the yard for half an hour before they go back into the cubicle house. Um, I mean, some of that back-to-basics animal husbandry is actually really effective at helping to control mastitis, making sure you've got good pre-dipping and post-dipping and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's sometimes innovation can be um, just that reconsideration of back to basics um, animal husbandry. So it's, yeah, it's important that we use all of the tools in the toolkit. and, And again, that sort of retraining and some of the social science that's sort of gone into that behavior change um, is now becoming increasingly important. And I know there's certainly a number of of universities looking at that combination between the control of infectious diseases in people and animals, and actually the social science that comes behind that expectation when you go to your GP, you get a prescription for antibiotics versus um, or or even to the vet you know that if you take your dog or cat to the vet that you'll come away with some tablets um uh or, or a long-acting shot of something uh you know we need to get beyond that um, and and the, there's there's innovation in that and how how we go about doing that as well how we go about influencing people
0: yeah for sure and it, it really struck a chord with me the back to basics because In many ways, that's the very essence of how we tackle a whole range of endemic disease and the exotic ones on our border. You know, we've looked at avian influenza, African swine fever. There is no end to um, the risks to the UK um, farming sector when it comes to exotic disease and really going back to basics and looking at things like biosecurity, but also the really innovative solutions around disease monitoring and surveillance, allowing farmers, producers to be able to spot things at the earliest opportunity, And like you said, it's not just the tech, it's actually innovation in the way we think in our behaviour. So it it really strikes me that that adoption piece, whether you're adopting new behaviours or understanding the technology that you have in a better way, seems to be the real opportunity to catalyse us going forward to tackle these um, endemic diseases and the exotic ones too.
1: And, And COVID, I think, also provided, again, sort of more really good examples of that. And um, you know, and from in that in that way, it was from the animal health sector to to human health. you know, um we thought nothing of locking the country down in two thousand and one when it would fit mouse disease outbreak, but you know, lockdown for humans was was something we'd never really kind of come across before. and um, you know we we talked about Bubbles and social distancing, and um, you know the number of family members that could get together. You know, at the height of, uh, you know, we we call that stocking density in animal health. You know, Um, and. You know, even, even terms like herd immunity, you know, well, that, funnily enough, came from, you know, our our ability to, to treat herds and, and flocks of, of livestock. So, yeah, it, it, it is. It's funny. And I mean, all of that at the time seemed very regimented and, and quite sort of brutal, um, you know, during the pandemic, but, you know, that that is the kind of um, disease control measures that we've been putting in place for infectious diseases like foot and mouth and African swine fever and so on as well. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I never thought I'd see the day where sensitivity and specificity were words used in parliament, and I think that just goes to show you the collective knowledge in, in terms of disease and surveillance has really uh, has really moved up, hasn't it? And there's probably a real opportunity there to, to take that forward and not forget the learnings um, so that we can move on. Um, it also strikes me in terms of welfare, animal welfare, hugely emotive topic, and of course, protecting welfare will speak not only to us in terms of veterinary professionals, but wider society as well, and the expectations that we have for our farmed li- livestock and on the aquaculture side, which I know you're um um, you have significant expertise in as well, um, but there's a lot more to it than just animal health for sure. We're not saying that, it's just that. Um, but there's lots of innovations too in welfare. So it's a hugely developing science. We have at the Animal Welfare Foundation Forum, which continues to, uh, to push things forward. Innovations in monitoring, looking at pain management and the broader impact. Can you see that science really evolving and thriving, Simon, so that Animal health being a pillar of it, it will be significant going forward.
1: Yeah. And I mean, again, just to harp back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, fish don't feel pain. You know, it, it, that was, you know, the, the mantra of, of some. And, um, you know, whereas now we're in a situation where, you know, I think welfare, both of people and animals. And again, sort of thinking about that sort of one health, one well-being kind of principles. You know, we're thinking very much about not just physical health in terms of things like infectious diseases um broken bones trauma that kind of stuff but we're thinking about mental health um much more generally and actually that then sort of translates over and without you know becoming anthropomorphic we then have to provide a scientific evidence base for um you know for making those improvements and actually measuring those improvements so again moving away from just the sort of five freedoms, five welfare needs um, of the past and and moving that language forward to be talking about a better life and a good life for animals um, and a good death for animals whenever we're talking then about, about livestock. Certainly my role at BVA, um, over the last five years, we've produced a number of really key policy positions in that area looking at um, welfare at the time of killing, uh, looking at um, sustainable animal agriculture, um, which again includes aspects related to welfare at the time of killing and things like AMR, um, antimicrobial usage and so on. Um, and then more recently, we've uh, just in the springtime this year, we we launched a, a, a position on sustainable uh, finfish aquaculture, um, and again, sort of mentioning things like development of welfare outcomes in that respect as well. And there is an expectation now in the general public um, that you know we used to, you know, have hens and battery cages. We moved them, and and it's been that's been an evolution you know, into barn systems and free range systems. Um, And there is an expectation now on the part of the general public that we move in that direction, that we can provide um, the farm assurance schemes like Red Tractor and RSPCA Assured and and others um, about how they can measure that. So looking at welfare outcome measurements and and so on. But just again, to give you a, a quick example, I suppose, of a piece of research, I'm based at Queen's University in Belfast, A really key piece of work that was done by Professor Bob Elwood um, at Queen's a number of years ago, really helped to develop the narrative around the uh, sentience of cephalopods and decapods, which went into recent UK legislation um, in the animal sentience spill Um, and That's just an example of where a really key piece of of scientific evidence-based research provided that really robust evidence base to help derive new policy um, that was up to date. Fifty years ago, we would never have thought that there would be an animal sentience bill going through Parliament. Um, But we're now at a position where we're helping to really develop and and refine some of that language around sentience, around welfare um, and and taking that forward. And that evidence base then also helps with conversations around things like, um, you know, welfare slaughter and, and new management systems and things like that as well.
0: Yeah, fantastic examples there, Simon. And your mention of parliament and, and regulations and development, of course, that's that permeates our industry at lots of different levels, whether it's veterinary medicines, veterinary surgeons, what they can do. Um, you know, topical things like gene editing. And, you know, when you think about innovations, the questions always asked, are regulations holding us up or are they providing that bedrock in which innovations can thrive? And I suppose in many ways things being innovative they tend to run ahead of the regulation so there's always the challenge there with regulations to catch up but in the UK what's your view in terms of where we're at with the the types of regulations that can really enable innovations here um, and set us up to be quite competitive internationally?
1: Yeah so I mean we quite often think of, of regulation as being something that holds us back and keeps us in a box. Um, regulation can actually be a really powerful tool um in a in a positive manner as well. Uh, the important thing is about getting dynamic regulation that is based on current on current best practice or current evidence, right? Um and we need to and this is where that cycle of um uh, investment leading to the right type of scientific research leading to the right type of innovation i want to say innovation it could be a box of tricks it could be a new vaccine or it could be a new way of measuring something so looking at things like welfare outcomes that then helps us to derive the right kind of policy um, at government level and also then stimulate trade and investment so a good example of that is, you know, we, we've got a number of, of uh, private assurance schemes uh, in the UK for our for our farm animal produce. Um, and those can actually be used as a really powerful tool whenever we're trading overseas, because we can actually say um, that our fish are, um, you know, coming from um, the, the Scottish Atlantic salmon sector, are... RSPCA assured they have Labelle Rouge accreditation, um, and we're selling a really high quality product that meets the highest welfare standards and um, that are available based on the best practice at this time. But to flip that round, then the regulation of the of the aquaculture sector, and I'm used to using that as an example because obviously I've been working on it quite recently. Um, but the, you know, looking at, at the um, you know the placement of um, location of new sites for aquaculture, the types of new technology that are available for controlling things like sea lice, the uh, vaccination strategies for other infectious diseases. Again, that all needs to be based on best current practice and and, and with a good strong strong evidence base. Um, you know, we can't just ply on uh, willy nilly and, and, and hope everything's going to be OK. And um, so so there is a, there's very much a balance to be struck there. But getting that cycle of investment, which this report from CL is, is, is all about, um, is really important in, in that respect. And I suppose just to take it even a step further, I mean, the thing about this report is and, and CL, obviously, by the very nature of its name, is focused on uh, innovation, excellence and livestock. But this report also then covers companion animals and horses as well. Um, so it's not just food producing animals um, either on land or in water. And, and again, that's also really important when we think about One Health, um, you know. and there were a few high profile cases during COVID of transfer of COVID across into things like mink and ferrets and cats even, um, and, 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 and zoo animals. Um, we need to think about everything in the whole, and and that's why it's important that we get that collaboration going right across. and And this investment report is is really important in that respect. We consider ourselves to be a nation of pet lovers, um, but again, you know, innovation in how we look after um, and care for, and and recognise the benefits as well as. Um, you know, focusing on some of the harms that are associated around pet ownership and um, there are a lot of benefits and, and some really good work going on um, you know, into the benefits of pet ownership as part of one health and well-being for the pet and the, and the, and the owner. And um, so looking at the, all of those innovations in, in the whole as well is, is also really important.
0: Yeah, and I suppose lots of interesting cross disciplinary work between livestock companion animals in terms of those, um, you know, the wearable tech and surveillance and monitoring. Uh, really interesting to see that. And many, of course, animal health companies having portfolios um, across both sides, lots of startups in the CL um, sphere as well, really interested in diagnostics and monitoring AI technologies, which is incredibly exciting. And I suppose that sits on a backdrop of really, really great um, capability throughout the UK, CL, of course, has invested and made, um, thanks to the support of Innovate UK, really has um, helped deliver one of the greatest research capability investments in a generation. And we're seeing that right across the UK um, and some some excellent facilities and expertise. And, and quite close to you, of course, Simon, will be Queen's um, University and the Institute of Global Food Security, which, of course, is critical in terms of it being really having that strategic focus on resilience and climate change um helping to deliver i think on our grand challenges again so um i think from your perspective again northern ireland very strong base um, in terms of animal health research and um, climate resilience um as well so interested in hearing your thoughts in terms of the future direction there and the contributions
1: yeah so like you know this is 2023 it's 10 years since the government published its strategy for agricultural technologies and and it was on the the back of that really that the agtech innovation centers were founded um, you know there was an early catalyst funding round um you know looking at, at supporting um innovation in the in the agricultural technology sector specifically um and obviously during that decade there you know there's been an evolution then on the the delivery and and the growth of the innovation centers Um, And the links, the important links then with, as you mentioned, um, uh, uh, Innovate UK, um, but also then I think developing some of the links with the likes of Invest Northern Ireland, um, Scottish Enterprise, Highlands and Islands Enterprise in Scotland, some of the local enterprise partnerships throughout England and Wales, um, you know, and and with what was, you know, the the agri-tech team within DIT, obviously now the Department for Business and Trade, But again, I'll come back, Grace, to that cycle being really important in terms of, you know, innovation and investment and trade and export, you know, um, export trade, then driving more inward investment from the likes of the big animal health companies um, and, and supporting that for us here, certainly in Northern Ireland. Look, I'm not going to jump down a political rabbit hole here, but you know we're sort of sitting in, in a in a funny position with, you know, initially the Northern Ireland Protocol and now the Windsor Agreement. But you're right, we have a really strong base here um, at Queen's University, the Agri Food and Biosciences Institute, um, both members of of CL, and um, the College of Agriculture, Food and Rural Enterprise, and and some links then with Ulster University as well. So what we're starting to shape up as the Northern Ireland Diamond. But right across companion animals, um, you know, farm animals, food security, um, a lot of research going on at Queens around uh, parasitology, a lot of research going on around microbiome and, and manipulating the microbiome to improve productivity, um, looking at sort of animal welfare, AMR considerations, um, and methane uh, mitigation as well in, in ruminants. So some really important work going on. Um, and some of that work obviously then very translatable on the international um, market. You, you touched on, on um, you know, my links with Ripple Effect. Ripple Effect is part of a, 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 a collaborative group called Action for Animal Health. And interestingly, the day before um, the CL report launch, I was involved in a, in a reception launching a report from Action for Animal Health in Parliament, which was around investment in animal health to support One Health. And that's looking predominantly at developing countries as well. So th- this this kind of whole concept of, you know, innovation, investment, trade, um, you know, supporting food security, supporting food safety as well as security. So there's no point in just producing more food if it's not safe. Um, so safety and security, um, but also then looking at, at, at links with, other, you know, wildlife, companion animals, and so on, as well, and and certainly for an organisation like the Brook, um, which leads the action for animal health um, group, and um, they're particularly interested then in working equids as well, so donkeys and ponies and how they're used in developing countries, and um, and they're linked to humans and you know human well-being as well. So it, it is everything's joined up.
0: Fantastic. You've described what's really an absolutely exciting time to be involved in animal health in the UK. Clearly, we are taking a leadership position. We've lots to do. I think the challenges that we face has probably really put pressure in terms of really pushing forward innovation. And some of the themes coming across to me are that ability to really collaborate, to coordinate across the four nations, to think strategically about how do we embody the adoption of social science as well, How do we lead on regulation, enabling that to be quite nimble and to support um, innovations going forward and to continue to invest in our animal health capability and make it a really attractive place for scientists around the world to work, for companies to land here um, and to get established in the market. So. I think we've just touched on a huge um a huge range of topics and it's been really insightful. And I really want to thank you, Simon, for for really kindly sharing those insights and experience, um, which has been fantastic. Um, It just leaves me to say really thank you all for listening. Um, If you want to find out more about what we do at CL, you can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and do check out our website, cielifestock.co.uk, where you can download the report that we uh, refer to investing in animal health and learn more. And do look out for more podcasts in the future on topics such as these. And thank you all very much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.